Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. So today I want to speak to you about Jesus, the suffering servant. If you will turn your Bibles with me to 1 Peter, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead, reach right in front of you. There's one right there. As we look at Jesus every Sunday, our goal is to look at our Savior, look at our Lord, look at his life and his ministry, and to evaluate our life and evaluate our ministry in light of him. This is what it is to follow Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says this, And after you have suffered a little while, I think that phrase kind of means life, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And the whole church said, amen. Amen. To him be the dominion. This is what God will do. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you are intimately involved in our life, God. God, we thank you, Jesus, that you are the one that marks out our walk and and that we don't have to walk this walk alone, but you are with us in every single step. And so, Lord, I pray that you even teach us what it is to be like you, suffering servants, God, in pursuit of the Savior. Today, Jesus, come and speak to us because we want to hear you. In Jesus' name, come on, all God's people said, amen. 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 When we were on our recent trip to Israel, I got away early in the morning with a couple guys because I wanted to go see this certain location that I had heard of. It was in the old city of Jerusalem. You had to go in through the Damascus Gate in the Muslim Quarter, and it was so early, you know, people were just opening shops, and the city was sort of waking up, and, and I was searching for a certain door, and all I knew was that it was under an arch, and uh, it has no sign, and, and it, it, it has no, no, no uh, ways towards it. It's almost like you have to already know where it is to get there sort of thing, and and so we're, we're kind of searching along. We found the arch, and underneath was the door that we had heard was there, and there's a, there's a brass hand on the door that you're supposed to knock, and when you knock, they'll open the door for you. It, just, it felt like something out of Harry Potter, you know? It's like just this maze and this intrigue and mystery. The reason we went there is because I had heard that there was something down in the catacombs of this church I wanted to see for myself. So we found the brass door. We knocked, and This nun let us in because it was a convent. And she said, are you here to see um, the the stones? And I said, yeah. She says, it's all the way down. You're going to go down 20 feet. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And you'll find the stone that you're looking for. And so we went layer upon layer down past these ancient pools and these old pillars down to where the original floor of Jerusalem lay, where, where it was inside the Antonia Fortress, where Jesus was kept. And, and we found the, the original old stones. And, and, the, and the stone we were looking for has a, has a, a certain, is a, what's unique about it is that it has a game carved into it that the Roman soldiers would play. It was called Kill the King. 
And, and its goal was that you would cast lots and you would play against others. And, and the goal was that you would win the crown. And it's carved into the bedrock of this stone. And many believe it was the exact game and the exact place that they played as they cast lots for his clothing, for Christ's clothing. So I wanted to see this. And we found this stone. And, and I, it was just amazing to, to stand in that place where thousands and thousands of years ago, these Roman centurions uh, would spend their time in maybe the place where Jesus stood himself. And we were coming up, uh, the nuns said, do you want to go pray in the basilica? And we're like, there's a basilica? Of course, you know. And so we went through these winding locations and we went into this giant empty room and, you know, it echoed and we read the Bible. It was a spiritual experience. It was awesome, you know. But when we exited, we found ourselves on the Via Dolorosa. We actually found ourselves on the very first station, the beginning of the Via Della Rosa, where people go to from all over the world to commemorate at the first station where Jesus was condemned and right next to it where Jesus picked up his cross, went underneath the gate and went through the city of Jerusalem on his way to Golgotha. The Via Della Rosa is this route that people have walked, Christians, pilgrims, for thousands of years as they remember the footsteps of Christ. It's a procession where you remember the passion of Jesus. And the Via Della Rosa means the way of suffering. And it was amazing to stand there in that moment and look from that place all the way through the busy, narrow, ancient streets up towards where Jesus headed, where the Church of the Sepulchre is, where his, where his uh, burial site and resurrection site is, and, and see this way called the way of suffering. And every day, Thousands upon thousands of people walk this. They pray their way through the 14th station, nine of which are biblical, some tradition. They'll sing. In fact, we saw this just group of nuns singing in Latin as we walked by, and it was like, where are we? You know? You see people carrying crosses and reenactments and people crossing themselves. And the, the whole point is that they remember what Jesus did as they walked the route that, that Jesus walked, the traditional route. And they're following the footsteps of Jesus walking the Via Della Rosa. And, and, and what I realize, and, and this is the truth, is that if you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, you are going to have to walk the way of suffering. If you want to follow Jesus, he says, if you desire to follow me, you're going to have to take up your own cross. And then you're going to have to deny yourself. And then, and only then, can you follow me. And if your desire is to follow him, you're going to have to walk your own Via Della Rosa. And you don't have to go to Jerusalem to do it. But just to follow him is to take up your cross and to walk in the way of suffering. James and John they wanted to follow Jesus and they wanted to be close to Jesus. One day they come to him and they say, Jesus, we want to share in your glory and we want to be on your right hand and on your left hand in eternity because we know who you are. You are the king. You rule and you reign and we want to be close to you. It's a bold request. And what did Jesus say? He says, are you able to drink from the cup that I'm going to drink of? Are you able to share in the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they said, we are able, Lord. We're able. What was Jesus speaking about? He was speaking about the wine of suffering. He was talking about the baptism of death to life. What was he talking about? He was talking about becoming a suffering servant. The disciples constantly argued about who's the best, who's the greatest. 
Even at the, even at the Last Supper, they were arguing about who's the greatest. Because Jesus told them, one of you is going to betray you. And they all started saying, well, not me, not me. And then they, they went from that to, not me, because I'm better than you. And then it went from, I'm better to you, that I'm the greatest. <laughs> and of course, later that night, they all ran. That's always the argument of who's the best, who's the greatest, who's the most powerful, who's the most gifted, who's got the greatest calling, who prays the best, the best, the best, the best. This, this is the pride that gets into all of us. But Jesus, he speaks to James and John saying, do you want to share in the glory? He speaks to his disciples. Do you want to know what greatness is? And this is Jesus's reply. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is saying is, can you walk the path I'm going to take? Can you walk your own Via Dolorosa? The problem is suffering. Suffering always brings with it the temptation to turn inward. Suffering always brings a concentration on self. Isn't this true? I mean, when you get a paper cut, that's the only thing you can think of all day long. When you stub your toe, it's all you're thinking and talking about all day long. Suffering, suffering always leads to self. And if you're not careful, when you suffer, you'll so allow it to become self, and so, so will people out of their goodness and compassion. Are you okay? You know what's going on? They'll call, they'll check in. But if you're not careful, it can turn so inward, so inward, it, it's, it's, it, it moves even from being about the suffering to, to what the suffering produces. In other words, in other words um, suffering can become so about self that eventually it... it, it it, um, it becomes an excuse for how you live your life, how you act and react, what you do, the attention of others, because you're suffering, or, or, or it will even justify foolish and maybe even sinful actions because you'll say, you don't know what I went through, you don't know what made me like this. I have suffered, I've gone through difficulty, I've been broken, now that's who I am, that's what I do, that's how I act, and don't you say anything against it because you haven't seen what I've seen. You haven't been where I've been. You haven't suffered what I've suffered. So the suffering, the temptation of the suffering is to turn inward and make it all about self. And that's the problem of, of so many people through ages and through times. And, and, here's, and here's the... Uh, Here's the trap of the enemy that he really wants to do through all of that. After it has turned inward and become an excuse or a justification or a state of mind or a place of victim, once that's all said and done and, and taken root in your life, what the enemy wants to do is pull the trap and say, now stay there. Stay in the place of suffering. Don't move on. You don't need to. It's painful. It hurts to move. You're justified in your brokenness. Stay there. And suffering wants to keep you in its cycle, wants to keep you static, wants to not cause you to move on. But Jesus, though he suffered, walked the route, took steps on the path. 
He didn't stay in the place of suffering. What did he do? What did he do? Instead of turning inward and having it be all about self, Jesus showed us the path through suffering is to serve. To serve through the suffering. You say, well, how is it possible? That seems opposite what you should do. And that's exactly right. It is opposite your instinct. It's opposite your nature. It's opposite your flesh. It's opposite sin. It's godlike. It's to serve even through your suffering. Jesus came to be a suffering servant. Isaiah saw this 700 years before it happened. And he saw it so clearly that he prophesied, he prophesied about Jesus as if he was writing after the fact. That's how clear it is. And he describes to us a suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, he says this to you and me. Isaiah says, Who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. And all we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the suffering servant of us all. And when we read this, you, you got a question. Can you suffer? like Christ, and still serve? Can you be going through something and still help someone go through something? Can you face pain in your world without it becoming your whole world? Jesus shows us how to suffer and still serve. That's what the cross is. That's what the cross is all about. It is the grand display of salvation for humanity. It is the ultimate act of serving and it is done through the process of suffering. I mean, think about the statements that Jesus made on the cross as he is hanging there with every, every excuse in the world to turn inward and make it about himself. He turns to the thief on the cross next to him and says, today you will be in paradise with me. He, he looks at those that were mocking him and beating him, those that whipped him and tore his beard, who, who, made, who, who ripped off his clothes and exposed him to the world, who laughed at him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He looks at his mother and his disciple John, and he, he says, Mother, receive your son. Son, receive your mother. I care for you. Every statement Jesus made on the cross was about others. In the midst of his own suffering, he served. This is godlike. This is the Almighty. 
This is our savior. This is our hope. This is our model. This is who we follow. So if your suffering is still causing you to turn forever inward, I would, I would propose that you consider the cross because maybe you've not yet reached the revelation of the cross that suffering should turn you into a servant and cause you to turn outward. And I, 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 say, this, I say this not flippantly. I, I, really, I really understand that there has been and is maybe even in this day, in this moment, great suffering for those in this room or listening to this, this sermon. But I, I, I need you to please hear me. Suffering can never be greater than your Savior. And suffering is not the end. Salvation is your end. And so we have to put it in its proper place. Not make it our Lord, our God. Not make it our idol. Not make it our master. Not make it our whole world. Not make it our emotions or our thinking. Not let it drive all that we do because that is in place of God. We don't want to even make suffering a strange idol. We look to Jesus Christ on how we should walk through difficult trials and circumstances without losing sight of him. Because when we endure suffering, we become like our Savior. In fact, I would say that suffering offers us a very unique opportunity to become like Jesus that you will never get any other way. Why? Because he endured. <laughs> he endured suffering. Jesus endured all the suffering that you are going to have to endure in this life. The suffering of grief and loss. Jesus endured it. Think of his friend Lazarus, where he died and he sees his weeping sisters and Jesus weeps with them. Why? Because he has felt the pang of grief and loss. And you might say, well, yeah, Jesus could resurrect him, and Jesus will resurrect him, and Jesus could resurrect you, and Jesus will resurrect you. But that doesn't stop the pang, the difficulty, the trial, the suffering of grief and loss. There will be resurrection in the end, absolutely, but in the here and now, that is a real thing that every person is going to have to walk through. And you've got to know that Jesus has walked through it. The suffering of grief and loss, he has walked through. The suffering of betrayal, Jesus has walked through. I mean, at a, at a degree greater than any of us because he was perfection personified. And yet he was still betrayed. And, and, and maybe you feel like, well, I can't move on because I was betrayed in my life. Maybe it was in your relationship. Maybe someone cheated on you and you, you hate them with, a, with an eternal fire and you think I can never ever move on because I've been betrayed and no one understands it. Or maybe someone uh, cheated you out of, a, out of a business deal or maybe, maybe someone hurt you or abused you and you say, I, I can never ever ever let this go because I've been so betrayed. And, and the thing that keeps us in that brokenness is we, we think, well, no one could ever even understand it. And sometimes you'll even talk about it. You'll talk about it constantly. You'll talk about it to whoever will listen. And you'll try and get into the nitty gritty to make other people understand the hurt that you're going through. And the reality is, and you know this, no one can understand the depths of the hurt that betrayal will bring. You could talk about it for a thousand years and they can still never go through it with you. And yet Jesus has gone through the depths of the worst betrayal mankind could ever go through. Betrayed with a kiss? 
There's nothing worse than that. And, and the, reason it was, the reason it was such a betrayal is because you have to be close enough to kiss for, the, for it to be a true betrayal. He was that close. And the relationship was that deep. And he turned on Christ. And what did Christ have to do? He had to suffer through that betrayal. And so when you suffer through it, you've got to understand you have a Savior that has walked that, that way before you. He has walked that path before you. Jesus has pioneered the path of suffering before you. And, and I tell you this because I, I, I want you and I to be able to move our focus off of the way, off of the pain, off of the trial and the tribulation, off of the way and onto the way maker. We choose to not be obsessed with the hurt, obsessed with the past, obsessed with the pain. Instead, we allow it to turn our eyes to the one that makes the way through the hurt, past, and pain. We love Jesus more than we're hurt by others. Because Jesus has walked these paths. He's pioneered. And Jesus says to you today what he said to his disciples that day with Lazarus, these things do not end in death, but hear me, the end of your story and the end of your path, even through the suffering, is resurrection life. I love that the Via Dolorosa ends at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the last station is an empty tomb because in the end, though it starts with condemnation, it starts with the cross, it does not end there. As you walk through the journey of life, you are heading towards your creator and there will be redemption, there will be resolution, there will be resurrection, there will be a new garden, there will be forgiveness, and love, there will be Jesus Christ. And so we don't get focused or we don't stay focused on the way of suffering. We focus on the waypoint, the Savior. This is who we're heading towards. And he's so good. He walks this path with us. You've never, ever carried the cross alone. You've always shared the burden with Christ. And, and he's so good to willingly choose this. You know, for us, the suffering maybe is deserved. We live in a fallen world, but Jesus chose it and walked it first so that you'll never, ever have to walk it alone. Hear me. Some of you might feel like your, your loneliness is your suffering and no one else could ever understand it. But Jesus understands loneliness better than anyone who's ever lived. Because not only did he have all men turn away from him, he actually had God turn away from him. And know this, God will never, ever turn away from you because God chose to turn away from him. So even in the depths of your despair, your loneliness, you have a Jesus that comes close, that looks towards you, that will whisper to you, will answer, will hear every single prayer. And what man cannot do and the gaps they cannot fill, Jesus will come intimately close in that moment. So we don't hate the way. We love the way maker instead. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, because you are beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
What is he saying? He's saying that the suffering isn't the entirety of the story. That in the end, you will also share with his glory. That's what Jesus said to Peter, to James and John. Can you drink from this cup, the wine of suffering? We can, Lord. Okay, but if you can drink from this cup, you're going to be able to share in my glory. And, and, and it's so powerful that Peter, he brings this up to us to let us know, hey, don't consider it strange when you go through difficult things. And, and isn't that true? That's what we always do. We always are shocked by trials. We're always blown away by tribulations. We're always surprised by suffering. And it's always strange. We always say, why is this happening? What have I done wrong? Where did I mess up? Where's my sin? Who did this? What's happening? Is it my ancestors? Is it generational curses? What's going on? And if you're not careful, you can go into strange places very quickly because you say, this is strange. And Peter says, it's actually not that strange. Don't be surprised when you go through trials and tribulations. And don't regard it as strange because you're going to share with the sufferings of Christ. How do you say, uh, Pastor, I came here to hear about blessings. I'm going to have to listen to like three Joel Osteen sermons after this to just fill. And let me tell you, it ends in blessings. But I got to tell you about the process. It's very real. And I, I hope you don't avoid it. You don't run from it all the way. It says, no, share with, share it. Share it. Say, you know what, Lord? I don't understand what this is. I don't understand why it's happening. But I, I'm going to share in the sufferings because I'm going to know you more. Because I want to become more like you. And I want to share your glory as well. If I, if I get to share in the sufferings, then I also get to share in heaven. I, I, want, I want that share. I want that in my life. Because I think sometimes... Christians, we have the temptation to equate all, all suffering as spiritual warfare. Everything. You hit a pothole. And around here, you hit many. And some of them are spiritual. I'm not going to say all of them. Some are. You lose your job. You have a bad day. You make a mistake. Spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And what does it do? If you're not careful, it creates paranoid Christians. I gotta tell you, it creates paranoid Christians where the entirety of your focus is on Satan. What's he doing? Why is he against me? What's his plan? What's he after? Why is this happening? And we become like, <laughs> we become like those people with all of, the, all of the connections and the red wires, you know? And you're like, and this was connected to over here. And you become, well, you become shaky become nervous. And the entirety of your spiritual life becomes about the negatives. The entirety of your spiritual life becomes again about the one you're against. Let me tell you, Jesus did not save you. He didn't save me for us to be obsessed with Satan and his plans and his strategy. I understand he has plans and strategy. And I understand he attacks you, but I also know the end. God wins. You win. Amen. So I'm not going to spend my life obsessed. Instead, I will allow the sufferings to turn my eyes to the Savior. I got to allow my sufferings to link me arm in arm with the one who's worthy of my life. I, I pray that we are not people that are obsessed with spiritual warfare. May we be people that are obsessed with the Holy Spirit. And let, we'll let him fight our battles. And he's never lost one. 
And, and maybe this will help you. The three really simple things. Can, can I tell you three simple things? Number one, life is hard. And, and that's not all because of Satan. It's just because of life. Life is hard. And number two, God is working. He's not done. And number three, he'll use hardship for his workmanship. Life is hard, yes, but God is working and he will use every hardship for his workmanship and he will make you holy, he'll redeem you, he'll challenge you, he'll change you. I mean, you gotta think about this. God is looking to fashion you into an instrument that is worthy. He, he's, he's looking to make you into something that is strong, that is powerful. I mean, think about how a sword is made. That steel is first thrust into the fire. It needs to become malleable. It needs to become bendable. They begin to fold the, the steel over on itself time and time again, and they beat it with blows. Why? Because they're trying to form something that has strength in and of itself. And finally, it's grinded down until it is sharp. So God forms you like that. He says, I'm gonna use you. I'm gonna make you sharp. You're gonna cut the enemy. You're gonna cut through life. Well, you're going to have to go through some fire and you're going to have to be malleable and molded to the, 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 the way that I want you. And you're going to have to be under the blows of life. And, and God's going to grind some imperfections out of your life. Like we say, Lord, fit me for the master's use. Like, like make me like a, I don't want to just be like a clay pot. I want to be like a gold pot. And it's like, all right, well, gold takes fire. And then you got to be put on the wheel and then you got to get the imperfections out. It's a lot easier just to make clay, but you want to be really used? Okay. Trial, tribulation, and suffering will bring experience, wisdom, and the Spirit of God. And we say, yes, Lord, because we'd rather share in your glory than anything else. We want your presence, we want your life, and we want to know you. James says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, last, la lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces something. Pain produces what blessing never could. And blessing is so good, but pain produces in you and of you and from you what blessing could never bring out of you. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, our problem, though, especially our, our problem, it's the problem of people, but really this generation really struggles with this. Our problem, as extremely blessed Americans, is we avoid suffering at all costs. And when we can't, we view it as a curse. Instead of, causing it, uh, instead of it causing us to cling to Jesus, we become enemies of the hardship rather than allies of Christ. Can I tell you the truth? There is nothing like pain that will teach you how to pray. There is nothing like tragedy that will cause you to turn to the word of God. I mean, do you remember 
Do you remember in the middle of COVID, you opened the Bible and it read like it was a newspaper because we're in the middle of tragedy and then who would have known that the Psalms would come alive like this? It was like the ink was barely dry on the Bible. It's like it was written yesterday to me today because it's living and it's active and there's nothing like difficulty to bring out the reality of the word of God. There's nothing like a bad report that will cause you to remember God's promises. If there's, ever, if there's a parent in here that ever got the call that 911 is on the way, or something's going wrong with your child, you know in that moment that your reaction can be either panic or it can be prayer. And in that moment, if you've ever been in it, you begin to discover just how much you know how to pray. You begin to remember every verse you've ever heard. You're quoting verses not even in the Bible. The Holy Spirit's sitting next to you like, that's the Book of Mormon. That's not even, that's not even correct. Like, you know what I mean. You know, you know how to pray. When you're driving behind an ambulance that your child is in, you're going to the hospital. You begin to call upon God. You know how to bind and you know how to loose and you know how to shake heaven's gates. Why? What brought that out of you? Pain. And it brings you close to Jesus. And it gives you an authority. And not that you would ever choose to go through that or want to go through that. But you know that going through that is never, ever purposeless. But it's producing something deep in you that cannot be produced any other way. What am I saying? I'm saying that the solution to suffering is to look to the Savior, not to yourself, and not even to solve it, but to see him in it, with you, through it. I don't know if you've ever read the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. It's an unbelievable story. This young woman and, and her family were hiding Jews from the Nazis in Holland in the, in the, early, in the late 1930s, and and they were caught in what they were doing in the underground, and they were transported to one horrific concentration camp after another. And what she endured was suffering that's almost unimaginable, that another man could do that to a human. And, and she tells the story of how God intervened and, and was doing these little miracles all along the way, even the fact that they were able to smuggle a Bible in. It was absolutely shocking the way, but they knew God wanted them to have that Bible, and they began to speak about their ministry within the concentration camp. We know why we're here, to bring the Word of God. Her and her sister, Betsy, stuck in a quarantine camp for weeks after weeks, no food, freezing cold, horrific conditions, and finally they were moved into uh, barracks 28 in the middle of this concentration camp. And when they got there, they they, um, they, they, they get into these, these rooms that were meant for 400 people and 1,400 people are now occupying them. Five to a bed, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't even be on it without slipping off. And, and in that moment, Corey's sister, Betsy, she said, we need to thank God. She remembered the verse they read earlier that morning. What do we do? She said, this morning, we, we read in Thessalonians, thank God in all circumstances. So we need to thank God even in these circumstances. That's the key of how we're gonna survive this. And so Corey said, well, what is there to even thank God about? Nothing. And Corey said, well, uh, and, and Betsy said, well, we can thank God that we're able to be together, that they didn't split us up. So they, they got on their knees in this place and they began to thank God. Thank God that you brought us 
together and didn't split us up. They looked around the room and they saw more women than you could imagine squeezed into this place. They said, let's thank God that, let's thank God for the overcrowding, that there's more people to hear the word of God in the Bible that we read. So they thanked God for all of the women that were there. Lastly, Betsy says, we need to thank God for the conditions of the room. The place was filled, rancid with fleas, so bad they would bite you as horrific and torturous. And Corey said, I can't thank God for the fleas. I gotta draw a line somewhere. And Betsy said, no. Thessalonians says, thank God in all circumstances, not just pleasurable ones. We need to thank God for the fleas. And so Corey says, I'll thank God for the fleas. I'll thank God with you, but I think you're wrong. <laughs> and they prayed, they thanked God for the fleas. A couple days later, they noticed that in their new barracks, no one ever came to check on them, ever. And they were able to have all of this freedom that seemed like no one else in the camp was able to have. They brought the Bible out when, at first very furtively and secretly, but more and more because no one ever came in, they started having massive Bible studies. So many people wanted to come to their services, they had to start a second service. And people were crowded all around hearing the Word of God and they would read it by the twilight until it became so dark they couldn't read any other word. And Corey said that there in that concentration camp it became a picture of heaven because she would read the verse in Dutch and it would begin to be translated in every other language around the barrack, from Dutch to German and German to French and French to Italian, and then it would come back through, and she said, and in that concentration camp, you could hear a little piece of heaven, the word of God spoken in every language. It's unbelievable. They, this went on for three or four weeks, and she didn't know why they were able to do this in their ministry, be so effective, until one day she came home, and Betsy was was there and she came back to the barracks and Beth Betsy was there with a big grin and like a knowing smile and Corey said, what, what have you found out? And she says, I know why the sergeants won't come into this barracks. When they were brought in here, they said, we will not go into that place because there's fleas. Thank God for the fleas. So you see, even in the midst of insane suffering, little miracles, God's hands answering prayers with his people and shockingly bringing salvations. See, after suffering comes salvation. And here's the good news. God always gets involved. God always gets involved. First Peter 5.10, we're going to close with this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He will himself do these things. Thank God, because you couldn't do these things. You couldn't restore you. You can't confirm you. You can't strengthen you. But God says, I'll do it myself. By the way, he himself, not the government, not your 401k, not your abilities, not your strength, not your wisdom, not your talents, not your hustle, not your spouse, not your last name. God himself will get involved in what he initiates. He will work on until he completes. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. After you've suffered comes my mighty hand. It's like he heard the cry of his people in Egypt, and he intervened. 
It's not that there's not any suffering, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the verse. God says, but now I'm going to begin to restore. And I even feel this prophetically for some people in this room. Maybe you've been in a season for suffering and God's going to move you into a season of restoration. God doesn't leave you there. And if you choose not to stay there, then he can bring you into a new season. And what does he do? He begins to restore you. And restoration, we know, is a process. It's a painstaking process. And restoration takes time. But God will take time with you. And he'll begin to work on areas of your life that only he even knows needs work. Certainly only he could do the work. I mean, you are like a 57 Ford that was out rotting in the woods. You know, one of those wreckages that get brought in and dropped in God's garage. And what everyone else sees as scrap, God says, I see something beautiful. And he'll begin to work on you and grind the rust off you. And he'll begin to rebuild your engine, your internals, the way you think and act and move. He'll, he'll begin to restore you lovingly, lovingly, one piece at a time. And so some of you, he's 10 years into the restoration project. Thank God. Some of you, he's looking around. Where do I start? But start, he will. And finish, he will. And, and I'll tell you, he'll make you whole, complete, lacking in nothing. He'll make you better than you looked when you were originally made. He'll restore you completely because that's what he does. Restores minds, restores hearts, restores love, restores forgiveness like new again, where if you were lost, he brings you and makes, he returns you and makes you whole. And then, and then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just restore you. He confirms you. In other words, you are not denied by God. You might be denied by man, but you are not denied by God. I mean, if you bought, if you bought some, some flights today, some tickets, you would get a confirmation email saying you are headed in this direction at this place and this time. So God confirms you are mine. This is where we're headed. This is where we're going. And I'm going to get you there. He does not deny you. He confirms you. And, and he'll even confirm you to you for you, which is, a, which is a good thing because sometimes we think, is God against me? Is God mad at me? And then sometimes God will confirm you just so you know, I love you. I'm still restoring you, but I'll confirm you in the process. I'm for you. And you might say, well, what does that mean? I mean, like sometimes you'll pray a prayer that God will answer like within one hour and you think like, what was that? Now, God doesn't do that every time, but sometimes he does it just to let you know, I'm confirming you. I hear you. Sometimes you'll say something maybe to your kid and you'll say, I wouldn't go over there. I wouldn't be there with that kid. I wouldn't blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't blah, blah, blah. And they're like, whatever, because they're kids, you know. But then something happens. And what's God doing? He's confirming your leadership. He's confirming your authority. Hey, keep speaking the truth. Keep leading your child. If your child might never come back or say anything, but they're saying on the side, mom and dad were right. You've got to think about that next time. God's setting you up. He's confirming your authority. He's confirming your leadership. He'll even confirm your direction. Why? Because he's in the process of using your past and using it all <clears throat> to bring you close to him again. He'll let you in on his work. He'll give you his approval. What will he do? He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. Come on, how many know that God gives you strength? He is the source, not yourself. Come on, sin weakens you, but God strengthens you. 
I believe God wants to strengthen minds today. God wants to strengthen your emotions today. God wants to strengthen your spirit today. And lastly, God will establish you. Set and settled. Your house and your lineage. Like Abraham, he says, I am going to make a good work out of your life, Abraham. You are planted in the right place. You are under my authority. You will be under my hand of protection and blessing. God doesn't just speak that to Abraham. He speaks it to you. After you have suffered a little while and the suffering does not have to be a path, you walk alone. He will walk with you every step along the way. But after that season is done, there's another season. And God says, in that season will be restoration, confirmation, strength, and establishment by the mighty hand of a mighty God. In Jesus' name. Come on, can all God's people say amen? amen. Do you receive it today? You receive it? Amen. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.